Hello, friends. Welcome back to the episode of Be Here for a While. Today's episode of Be Here for a While is brought to you by Sports Research. I'm doing, I'm doing it. I'm doing their collagen peptides. I'm wearing the waist trainer. I'll tell you about it. Discount codes to follow. How are you guys doing? We're in a day 7,521 of quarantine. And it looks like, uh, I mean, I don't know. I refuse to really dig into how long the lockdown's lasting in LA, but uh, I have half-assed listened to Greg tell me that it could be extended through July, so I don't know. I'm fine with it. I'm just worried about other, you know, all the people, the frontline workers and the people, the you know, the, the people that have, have contracted it and I don't know if that's the right word, but um, uh, and gotten sick and the family might, which I just... Who cares if I have to sit at home and eat nachos, you know? Uh, and I'm and I'm I'm excited still. I know I keep teasing it, but it's coming. It's coming. The new podcast is coming, guys. Super excited about that. Keeping myself busy with that. How are you guys keeping yourself busy? What uh what are you what are you doing? Are you starting to lose it or are you, you know, thriving? What is your nachos and potato chips? What are you cooking? I don't know. DM me. Let's chat. But I hope you're doing well. And I just want to say thank you to all the essential workers out there and the the doctors and nurses and scientists working day and night to find a solution. And, you know, the delivery drivers, the grocery store workers. Um, This is very dark, but I just realized that um, the people that work at morgues that it, that are overwhelmed by it. it's like thank you thank you thank you thank you for um supporting our entire world and uh yeah thank you so I hope some of you people listen to my podcast so you can hear my thank you but if not even like the you know the the parents having to like homeschool their kids and and maintain their chill I, I hats off to you I mean Greg's like a kid so I have to you know, maintain him. But, oh, I was going to keep this intro short, but I just want to say I did give him a haircut. It took two days. Um, I did just the, like, the back and kind of the sides. And then I got real nervous that I need to do more research on the top. It looks okay. Unless it, like, dries in a weird way and there's a little bit of an alfalfa thing coming right out the side of his head. But I'm kind of proud of it. Like, it's really, it's not, I mean, it's better than it was. He looked like Lolita. He had these, like, like flamenco dancer curls at the side of his ears. And I was like, I couldn't look at him anymore. And then his hair, so this is, this was the final straw before I was like, I'm cutting it. It then formed into a bowl cut, sort of, like um, uh, Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber. Like, it, it, I don't know how it grew into, like, a perfect bowl cut, and on top of it, uh, I really hated him uh, that night because we had decided to do Greek night and uh, do a themed cooking night. And he decided to shave his beard and just have a mustache for Greek night. So he's rocking a mustache with a bowl cut. And I about took garden shears to his head at that point. But I maintained my composure and I was like, tomorrow's the day. You're letting me do this. It turned out, I mean, listen, it's better than the bowl cut. Um, so yeah, um, but I really thank you so, 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 so much. And thank you as always for your, uh, five star, uh, ratings and positive reviews. They, they mean the absolute world to me and it, the offer stands. You need something reviewed, you DM me, DM me on Instagram, follow me over there too. I'm at Rachel, R-A-C-H-A-E-L-N-O-B-R-I-E-N, 
reads like Rachel O'Brien. And I'll stop talking now, but also let me know how you're feeling. Okay, my guest today, I'm super, super, super excited about. Okay, if you, I don't know, Ear Hustle is an incredibly popular podcast, but I don't know a ton of people that listen to it. Um, I, I, I mean, that's shocking because they have over, over 40 million downloads. But my guest today is Antoine Williams, and he is one of the original co-founders of the podcast Ear Hustle. Let me tell you about that podcast. Uh, I'm just going to read there their bio. Ear Hustle brings you the daily realities of life inside prison shared by those living it and stories from the outside post-incarceration. This podcast is a partnership between Nigel Poor, a Bay Area visual artist, and Erlon Woods, formerly incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison and was co-founded with former San Quentin resident Antoine Williams. The Ear Hustle team works in San Francisco Bay Area, both in the San Quentin State Prison's media lab and from offices outside. They produce stories that are sometimes very difficult to hear and often really funny and always honest. I, If you're going to listen to Ear Hustle, I I recommend starting with the, the episode. I think it's like, please tell Christy I love her. It was in the year 2019, I'm pretty sure. I, I don't know that I've ever cried so hard with just like the joy of humanity. So start there, but then go back to the beginning. Um... Yeah, they just their episodes offer a nuanced view of people involved in the American prison system and those uh, re-entering society after serving time. And so Antoine, he uh, was released from prison about six months ago. Um, he's uh, creating music. He's uh, doing public speaking, uh, educating kids on how not to go from. He says in the podcast something about like um, the pipeline of like school to prison, but there's a way catchier way he says it. Um but yeah, it's really cool. And he talks about like, you know, what led him into prison and crime and, and what his upbringing was like. And I think it's just like a very, it's a very heartwarming and humanizing look into where life can take a wrong turn, but the beauty that can come out of that. He's he's awesome. So without further ado, give it up for Antoine Williams. Uh, and the music you're going to hear on this podcast song, is y'all. Antoine's hey, original music. Hey. We're going to get to the truth today, to the man. Truth today, For real. Man. Hey. Uh. Uh. Hey. 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 Look, I think it's sad, but I owe you the truth I'm in my 30s and we gotta do more for the youth I know we can only give all the things we consume So it hurt when I see they got their nose to a spoon No, it's all good, thank you for having me Yeah, so, okay uh, Basically, I discovered you from listening to the Ear Hustle podcast Which is so good mm-hmm. um, And then I, I started following you on Instagram Started listening to your music and stuff And just became really interested in your story. So I guess uh, I sent you a list of questions that I was planning to ask, but I guess I wanted to maybe start from the beginning. Sure. Yeah. So you you mentioned it. It is funny. Uh, I get what Erlon was talking about on Ear Hustle when you were like, you know, it was just I grew up like every other kid that grew up in. Is it South Central? Is that where you're from? Yeah. Yeah, and he was like, I think you need to explain that more for the <laughs> listeners <laughs> because, I mean, I live in L.A., so I I know, but, like, I think most people don't know unless maybe they've seen a few movies that are probably skewed in, you know, yeah, one absolutely. direction or the other. So tell me about uh, your upbringing growing up. Well, my upbringing um, for the first few years was actually um, 
a beautiful thing, right? Like, um, I think I might have been in, was it like kindergarten or something like that? I remember my mom always telling me, like, um, like Antoine, you have your mother and your father at home. Like, do you know how lucky you are? Do you know how blessed you are? And she used to tell me that for years, right? But I never really, I never really understood it until, um, like addiction hit my family hard. Um, mm-hmm. my, my mother and my father both were addicts that, you know, they abused different substances from, you know, um, cigarettes, marijuana, alcohol, uh, crack cocaine. Um, as far as I know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my house. My and that, house, but how old were you when that happened? Or was it just that you hit a certain age where you noticed that that's what was going on? No, I think I was in the, um, I want to say maybe the like second grade or first or second grade is where like everything went bad. Um, you know, like again, my mother and my father became slaves to their addiction and their addiction um, just like fueled a trauma filled fire in them that I don't even think they were able to recognize or understand at that time. So, mm-hmm. uh, my older, my oldest brother who is now resting, like he was, he was incarcerated the majority of my childhood up until like my late teenage years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just me and my, my older sister, my older, my older sister is six years um, older than me. And, you know, she was kind of left to like fend for me, you know, at a very young age. Mm -hmm. So when my mother and my father um, separated, you know, before they got a divorce, they were just separated because the household became unhealthy. And, you know, it just it it, it just became about their addiction. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So they they left. Right. Like they just. They just were gone, you know, and now I do understand that that's to like no fault of their own. Like I understand, I like, mean, they were slaves, yeah. but I, you know, I come from South central Los Angeles. So, you know, once I, again, like the second, third grade, like it was, it was that hard life, you know, um, like really what it is, what is it that we're going to eat? You know, how do we keep water on? I remember, I remember living in Compton at one point in time, and our neighbors would like boil water in big, um, in big, like super huge gumbo size pots. Uh huh. And you know, and come fill the the tub up for me, Aww. like that. You know, it was it was like that kind of bad. Um, mm-hmm. You know, living in an abandoned house for about a year, and until my grandmother came and um you know, like rescued me and, and really started to just like rebuild my foundation. Of so when you say living in abandoned houses, you, your parents didn't have like they a lease on it or anything. It was just like, you were essentially like squatting in the place. So we, we did, we did live in the house, but then we were from, you know, my understanding is like, we were basically like evicted, but mm-hmm my sister and I was still living in the house. Like the power was off, the water was off. Oh, wow. Um, you know, little to no food in the refrigerator and not even knowing that I ended up like making it worse. I remember my sister like really blowing up at me. I think I was making like some bacon one day. I'm uh-huh. kidding. I'm in like the fifth grade. I'm in the fifth grade. I make some bacon. 
And I didn't know that you're not supposed to pour the grease down the sink. So oh, I'm like, yeah. I'm trying to clean up. <laughs> so I poured the grease down the sink and I just like made things worse. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. But it, So it, you basically, did you know, I mean, you must have at the time, like that you were basically on your own taking care of yourself and, well, you, your sister was also helping, but... So were your parents just not in the house or when they were, you said they were a slave to their addiction. Was it just, they were out on the streets, like trying to get high or. Um, I don't know. I know that, you know, they, it would be, um, times where they would come and go. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it was my, my sister. Right. And, and again, at the time I was living in Compton and my grandmother was actually working at a school, maybe two miles from where, from where I was living. So every morning she would come and like, you know, bring me some food or, you know, something like that. Aww. And, um, and it's crazy. Cause like I always went to school too. That's the one thing that my sister and my grandmother, like regardless to, they didn't, they didn't care like what kind of situation mm-hmm. we was in. Like you finna go to school. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, honestly, it shows though. You're very well-spoken. Like, thank you. Yeah, like it shows that you had at least uh, as good of an education as the Los Angeles, you know. I mean, I, I'm i from a very small town in Oregon originally, and uh, I don't, I mean, my school was so shitty. Like, it was just not a lot of programs, and so I'm I'm lucky that I uh, uh, as uh, am as intelligent as I am. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, like, so I, I imagine the school system wasn't great, but yeah, it shows that there was definitely definite care when it came to that. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, you know, I, for as for as bad as my childhood was like, you know, I I did have, um, people of influence. I did have people who still would like nurture me right to a degree. Mm -hmm. Um, so regardless, like there was still growth, there was still, uh, progress and and, and process. And a lot of the things that I went through kind of forced me to do things on my own. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in like the fifth grade, I started like, traveling from city to city by myself from you know san pedro to long beach to compton what, to wait, LA. what were you doing <laughs> so my grandmother lived in long beach uh-huh. but the the house that we were staying in my sister and i was in compton mm-hmm. but we at this time again like we were moving in so many different places like all of my friends were in paramount mm-hmm. so you know, whenever, if it was, I need to go to my grandmother's house or I want to just go to the movies by myself, which is one another thing that I used to always do. Um, I would just go, right? Like I knew the bus routes. Mm-hmm. I knew how to get to where I needed to go. And and what yeah. year, what year was this? I feel like you're around my age. Uh, this was two, was this like 99 or 2000? Oh, Okay. So, so that wasn't, so that what that kind of thing wasn't as common. Like if it was like the seventies or eighties or whatever, like, yeah, kids, they, you know, doesn't matter what age it was just sort of like, yeah, walk to school. You can, you know, go 30 miles on a bus, but like, yeah, by the time that the nineties and early two thousands hit, like people knew a little bit better than not to not let kids do that. So yeah, that was probably very rare for you to be traveling around like that. It was. Um, and that's, and again, um, you know, just looking back to like some of the things my mother would say to me or like some of the values and the principles that, you know, my grandmother would is, would instill in me, you know, to like, you know, be self-sufficient, do things on your own. Like, you know, like, you know, make a way for yourself. 
Um, I understand that again. I am very, 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 very lucky because out of all of those adventures are just me being naive and thinking I can go from city to city and like nothing will happen to me. Like mm-hmm. nothing, actually nothing happened to me. You know what I'm saying? It's a mm-hmm. lot of children who are lost, who are taken, who are abused, you know what I'm saying? Who are mm-hmm. um, discarded like trash, right? Especially mm-hmm. when you can tell that this child is not being properly cared for, right? Like that this is a child that might not be missed in the eyes oh, of some people. Absolutely, yeah. They, they, I mean, predators and people like that, they know how to prey on someone that yeah that that is either lost or and in need of like friendship and so they don't know how to recognize like oh this is kind of weird or yeah. that or that is you know a disenfranchised or where it's like oh someone's not gonna be if you're not john benet ramsey they're probably not paying attention you know yeah. like if you're not a little white girl guys can we make a pack together that we try to up our fitness game during quarantine come on you and me both of us. Yes, I am eating more during this time, but I am upping my workouts and I'm doing this also with the help of Sports Research Sweet Sweat and Waist Trimmer. It is taking my workout to the next level. So let me just tell you about it. Sports Research, they're the makers of the best-selling collagen peptides on Amazon and they want to celebrate their 40th anniversary with you and help enhance your workout with their flagship product, Sweet Sweat. Okay, so many of you already make exercise a priority, but Sweet Sweat helps take your workout to that next level by targeting slow to respond areas. For me, 100% my stomach, that could again have to do with the eating, but let's just say it's genetics. But Sweet Sweat helps me increase sweating during exercise in that targeted area, and it's giving me such a better workout. So think about it, it takes energy to sweat. More energy than most people might think. And like all energy-consuming processes, sweating helps burn calories. So Sweet Sweat might sound intimidating, but it's really simple. You simply apply the gel to slow to respond areas. Me, my stomach, yes. Um, And it smells super good, though, like coconut. And it kind of makes you glisten. Um, And then you maximize your results by producing extra sweating, which is then burning more energy, calories, etc., And on top of it, I'm wearing their waist trimmer. You don't have to get the waist trimmer. I highly recommend it though, because it's kind of just like making that sweet sweat work and it's trimming your waist and holding you in. And yeah, so I would say for best results, use the sweet sweat in combination with their best-selling waist trimmers. Um, Yeah, so join the thousands of people who are already achieving their fitness goals with sweet sweat and meet your motivation today. After all, it's not a workout unless you break a good sweat. And I have an offer for you guys. If you go to sportsresearch.com and use the code B here at checkout right now, you'll get 20% off your order. That's 20% off site-wide at sportsresearch.com with code B here at checkout. Sports Research, your one-stop shop for a lifetime of performance, health, and wellness. Yeah, but they do. That, that is a very common thing, I'm sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm fortunate in, in that area, right? Like a... Again, I don't look at my past and I and and only see the aspects of it that would make me be like, you know, man, like screw this. You know what I'm saying? I think like, that's a really beautiful thing. Like, I was thinking that about a, a minute ago when you were saying like I'm really 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 lucky. I'm like a lot of people would feel sorry for themselves in your situation. Like it's really cool and impressive yeah. to hear you say that you feel really lucky. No, I do, right? Because it, at the end of the day like um 
I know my mother and my father like love me dearly. Like they're both in a phenomenal place in their life now. And, you know, they actually provided like, you know, years in my, especially in my development, in my, in my stages of development, um, where I've, I had a sound and a very solid foundation for what it looks like to be in a healthy home, right? What it looks like to have both parents. What does it look like to see, you know, like love blossom in a household? Like I was offered that, like I, I do know what that looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, regardless to what my understanding and my perceptions became as I grew older, I never really lost sight of that, right? So I know that if they weren't there to a degree, it wasn't because they didn't love me, right? Or it wasn't mm-hmm. because they didn't want me. Just as I got older, I understood like, man, they couldn't do any better if they wanted to. You know, yeah. like it wasn't it was it was bigger than their addiction became bigger than them. Yeah. It's and a very serious disease that people don't absolutely. a lot of people just think like, I don't know why you can't just quit that. Like it is it has such a stranglehold on so many people that mm-hmm. yeah so what so there was a probably i mean there's still is obviously um a lot of gang activity going on during that time did you ever get involved in that or did anyone ever try to recruit you or oh i tried i've been recruited a bunch of times mm-hmm. <laughs> how it, how how young do they start recruiting you because i was thinking that when you were like you know going on the bus or whatever by yourself or traveling from city to city like the, you seem like a youngest, prime target. The youngest um, age, I was in the um, I think like the fourth or fifth grade. But the wow, thing is, my so all, my entire family is like gangbangers, right? Like from my mm. older brothers, uh, all of my cousins. So to some degree, it was kind of already expected, right? And it's mm-hmm. like people already kind of knew who I was. But once I kind of branched out and was kind of living my own life, um, it was already being, you know, um, looked at by just a bunch of different people for a bunch of different reasons. Mm-hmm. But again, like I seen the whole game banging life, right? Like I grew up in it. It's not, it's, that was nothing kind of new to me. So it didn't entice me enough to be like, Oh, like I want to be from this hood. Mm-hmm. Nah, like I I my, I grew up in a family filled with gangbangers, mm-hmm. and all of my family's like you know from Long Beach, and I got family from L.A. and from Watts. So it's like I I I know it already, right? Like that's you, you can't yeah. sell me on like I got you, homie. Like man, it's gonna be you can't sell me on yeah. that. Yeah. Oh yeah, that makes sense because you're like I already I already know what the game is. Like yeah, you're not you can't mm-hmm. impress me with this. Yeah, that that was that that was never um, like enticing to me. That that wasn't mm-hmm. the thing that was going to solidify whether or not like you had value or presence or substance in my life. Like I'm not gonna live and die for you know for something that you stand for when like mm-hmm. my family is already yeah. So it just it never it never did anything for me. What did that look like? Like growing up with a bunch of family members that were gangbangers. Like how how much violence did you see? And uh, not even within your own family, but even just on the streets. Like, I'm sure pretty much every single person that listens to my podcast probably doesn't know what it's like to live in such a dangerous neighborhood that, like, there's shootouts yeah. all the time. 
I've yeah, I've seen a lot of violence. Um, I've seen a lot of domestic violence. I've seen people stabbed at a very young age. I've seen people shot. I've seen um, shootouts. I've seen like gang fights. Um, everything from in the household next door on my block in front of my home um, to to school. And then, you know, again, just looking back, I remember one moment in specific. I was in the, I think I was in the, the 11th grade. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm living in the 60s. I'm living in, in South Central. And my uh-huh. aunties came over to spend some time with my mom. So I'm sitting on the porch. And, you know, it's just like a little altercation between two dudes. And somebody starts shooting. So I'm like, all right, let me get up and go in the house. And when I walk in the house, my aunties and my mom is laying on the ground. They like, get down. They shooting at Twan, get down. I'm like, get up. Ain't no <laughs> I'm like, man, get up. It's over with. I'm like, what is wrong with y'all? And I'm I'm laughing. But looking back, it's like that's how desensitized I was, right? Like I've seen yeah. that form of violence in so many different places in my life that it no longer affected me in the way that, you know, I had a physical reaction of like, I'm in fear or, you know, let me get out of here or I don't want to get hurt or I don't, you know, like none of that came to me when Mm -hmm. I, when it happened, I'm just like, all right, let me go in the house. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm chilling. So that was, that was 11th grade. So, um, when did you start and, and how did, like any criminal activity that you got involved. So you never, you never had any gang affiliation. You were like, no to that. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so w- what, what kind of began a life of, well, not even a life. Cause you barely, I mean, you cleaned yourself up pretty quickly meeting you went to prison. You yeah. went at like 19, right? 18, 18. Jeez. So, um, what was sort of, was it just like stealing something out of necessity? Because like, I mean, I'm sure I would steal stuff from stores if I didn't have parents buying me food. Like, I, I, I don't have that experience, but I can imagine, like, you know, what else are you going to do at a certain point? Um, was that kind of how it started? Or did you did you just graduate quickly to – just explain, I guess. So, um, my case, my, my situation is um, – it's not unique, right? But I think it offers like a completely different perspective on how people can get to the place where uh, criminality is now a form of thinking, right? Like it's a go-to, mm-hmm. it's an avenue. But what 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 really stands out is again, like I grew up in in I grew up in an environment, so fear was never really something that was like instilled in me by other people. Right? Like mm-hmm. I always had a sense of identity. I always had a sense of individuality. But the difference is I was always willing to do what everybody else was. I just never wanted to do it. Right? Like I'm mm-hmm. not afraid to fight nobody. I, wasn't ne- I was never afraid to pick up a weapon. I was never afraid to rob somebody. I just didn't want to do it. And it's more children out there that's like that, that don't come from um, disenfranchised communities or abusive homes. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's just some people like will do things like, man, I do it. You know, yeah. if, like, if I ever had to, I would. Mm-hmm. And it was it's, it really was one of those things. And in my um, and in my high school years, 
Like, again, I've always been self-sufficient, so I used to, like, sell T-shirts, and I used to paint shirts and, you know, make CDs. I would do, you know, just a bunch of little miscellaneous stuff to, you know, get me whatever it is I wanted, if it was mm-hmm. shoes or, you know, sweaters or backpacks or whatever it is, um, cell phones, little stuff like that. Um, but getting to the point where I felt as if I'm already asking for little to nothing, right? Like, I'm not asking for like a bunch of shit like I'm not mm-hmm. and I remember once asking my mom um I think for like $50 I was going to my sister house and I um and I wanted to go to the pike down in Long Beach I used to always go to the movies by myself and kind of just you know kick and I think I asked my mom for like $50 so I can go to Nordstrom's rack and like, give me a t-shirt or something and just, you know, head to the movies. Mm -hmm. And I think she left me like $20 or something. Right. Like it was, and I'm like, damn, I don't even ask for nothing in my, in my mind. This is what I'm thinking. And I I made some, probably some like little smart ass comment. And my sister like flashed on me. She like flashed. Like, you think you bad ass? Meaning, meaning what? Oh, she like, like, she blew up on me. Mm -hmm. Right. Like my sister is like, she, She's she takes no shit. Yeah. Very, you know, very stern. Same with so, my sister. <laughs> yeah, she's supportive, very loving, yeah. but she's like, I'm not, you know, like I'm not gonna play that with you. Um and she says something about like, you know, like you think you you think you bad, you think you really badass. And in my mind, I'm like, I really don't. I'm like, but you know, don't think that I won't. Mm-hmm. And internally it became more of a dialogue of like, you really don't think I will do this shit. Like you really think I'm like, like a buster or like a mark or like I'm weak or soft or something. Mm -hmm. And that internal dialogue started. Mm. And then my brother, again, he was recently paroled at the time and he came over and it kind of became like a big thing throughout my family. So my brother came and he was talking to me, but his approach was more along the lines of like scared straight. Like, you know, I didn't already been there. If that's what you want to do, like we can do it. This ain't what you want. And I'm trying to tell you and so on and so forth. And I'm sitting there quiet, but I'm like, all right, you think mm-hmm. I won't. Mm-hmm. You think I won't. Like, again, it wasn't. I don't so just, such a fragile young male or any teenage ego type of thing. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah like it, I can handle myself. Yeah. Like, you know, that kind of, um, that kind of mindset, right? Like, and just really being naive to like what doors I was opening, but understanding that like, yeah, I, I come from what, you know, mainstream media or what society would say is like a broken home. But really, my home was like trauma field, right? And, and in that, mm-hmm. like my traumas were, were created and being so self-sufficient and being so like, I'll do it myself. And, you know, going to such places where like fear really didn't exist for me anymore. And it's like, I ain't tripping. Like, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more children and more people get to that place without knowing it, right? Like it's... Mm-hmm. This is not one of the cases where it was, um, I didn't have, I was in high school and I didn't have shoes to put on my feet. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have X, Y, and Z. Like, it's not that kind of case. It was, it's more so, 
um, that narrative that I'm telling myself. That yeah, I well, you don't will. know what your trauma is and while yeah. you're in it. Like, you don't know that that was what was fueling it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and you know, and I, I got to a place where I started to value materials and status and popularity more than I value, like, the well-being of people and the mm-hmm. safety and the security. But those are aspects of life that, you know, you really just don't see at a young age, right? If un- yeah. Unless somebody say like, man, this is what it is. And I didn't have that. Like I was, I was so much on my own that internally um, in trying to heal my traumas and trying to understand where I was coming from, I was getting more lost in the ways of the world. And that just led me down a path where it was like, all right, I'm just going to get my money. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I'm just, it's me and my homies. Right. And, and again, it's like, I, I, I have never been the kind of person that's like, I need a gang to feel stronger or, mm-hmm. but I did have like five friends that I was willing to like live and die for. You know, mm-hmm. I went, I went to prison. I have five co-defendants. It was six of us, you know what I'm saying? And I still wow. have co-defendants who are still serving time. Um, wow. You'll have to explain that. So what, what was the crime that, that sent you to prison at 18? When I was 18, I was arrested for a string of armed robberies, um, 18 armed robberies, seven kidnappings. You you had a good run. Yeah. (laughs) Where where does the kidnapping come into play? Does that mean like you like held someone up and they consider that kidnapping or did you actually? So this kidnapping it um is along the lines of if you move somebody six feet against their will. Uh that's what I figured it probably was. Okay. Yeah. And you know, to and and by the ways in which the laws are written, like yeah, like you you're forcing somebody to go somewhere that they don't want to mm-hmm. which can be like, you know, a clear indication of a kidnapping. But in these circumstances and the and again, this is not minimizing anything, right? Like people were traumatized in this, you know, mm-hmm. like people were, if if it's from one room to the next, forcing mm-hmm. somebody to go somewhere, like it's unacceptable, right? Like it is yeah. not, it's not okay, right? Like it, that's not, <laughs> that's not the way um, anybody should, should be forced to live, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, 18 robberies. And were they um, mostly? So they were, were they home uh, homes or stores? What? Oh no, they were stores. They were stores. Um, okay. Yeah, stores throughout like Los Angeles and some stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Los Angeles, matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, okay. So I read. Uh, I was briefly skimming it before we started recording, so I could get it wrong. But your nickname became Banks because your bail was so high. People thought you robbed a bank. Yeah. Um, and what was actually, it? It Something was seven point three million. What the? Why? Because of the kidnappings. The kidnappings in itself oh. uh, holds a million dollar bail. Oh, okay. And the robberies were just robberies, so the bail wasn't as high. But my actually my first um, kind of like stable celly in the county jail was mm-hmm. kind of the one who who kind of gave me that name. He, he's his, he an older guy. His name was uh, Felipe. And uh-huh. he asked, like, you know, again, I'm, I'm very young. I look it, you know, I'm, I'm a fresh 18. He's like, you know, why don't you bail out? I'm like, I can't. And 
I told him how much my bail was, and he was like, "Oh, you was one of them little bank robbers, huh? That's what that's you was one of them little bank robbers out there." <laughs> and I'm like, "Ah, you know, I'm not really supposed to like, you know, talk about you know my case or anything." Mm-hmm. And again, like, still just kind of being to myself, being out of the way. Um, I ended up getting a visit, but didn't nobody know me from my bunk area. They was like, you know, Williams AC. You have a visit and couldn't nobody like place who that was. And my bunkie was like, oh, that's the little bank robber. That's my bunkie. That's the little bank robber. <laughs> and it kind of stuck like that over um, over my time there. Yeah. yeah. So what? how much time were you sentenced to and what did that moment feel like? I was sentenced to 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. I took a deal for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And as crazy as it sounds... Um, it was a it was a it was a plea deal and a package deal, so all of my my, my co defendants and I we all had to take the deal the same day. It was either all of y'all take it or we go to trial tomorrow or none of y'all take anything. And what okay. we were facing, just with the robberies alone, was seventy seven years. Wow! And but in a total, we was facing, I think a hundred and. 28 years and like seven life sentences mm-hmm. so because you've definitely passed the three strike rule at that point with <laughs> yeah so we were looking at you know in essence like throughout the whole like going on two years of us um going through the court proceedings like we were looking at life mm-hmm. you know or 30 years or 50 years or something like that so when i got so when we got the deal and my sentence was 15 years there was like a sigh of relief mm-hmm. and it's as crazy as it sounds when you're looking at life or when you're be, when you've been told that you're gonna do 55 years or you're gonna do Jeez. 37 years and somebody say 15 you like i can do that right like in relation yeah. it seems smaller and i think that's also a part of like the conditioning of just the culture around the justice system around you know being just system impacted because even for the family members that sounds good it's mm-hmm. like you can be doing life mm-hmm. but you only got to do 15 so the day that um I took my deal I remember so it, and it's crazy so it's like a 24-hour process when you are going through um, like court proceedings, they wake mm-hmm. you up at like one in the morning. You go through this long process, and you go from like holding cell to holding cell to holding cell. They transfer you to the the courthouse. You sit there for like another few hours. You go in court for like maybe twenty to thirty minutes, if that, and you leave. And you go through that whole process over. And about time you get back to your housing unit, it's one, two, or three in the morning the next the 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 next day oh wow and as we're driving back i'm looking out the window and it's a beautiful sunny day um it was july 18th and i just remembering like i'm gonna be out there like quick too like i'm short timing right now just that sense of relief because yeah i know the day will come when i will be released right and like yeah to some degree, all of this will be behind me. And 
Yeah, I think even, you know, as someone who's never been to prison, I think anyone can relate to like, oh, yeah, I guess it doesn't seem that bad when you were faced with 50. It's like 15 is doable. Okay. Yeah. And I wonder, did that incentivize you to um, be a model prisoner, basically? Because you obviously didn't want to. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. No. (laughs) Took a while? Yeah. What's really overlooked a lot is conditioning, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And the human capacity to adapt is crazy. Yeah. In any situation, people thrive. And if your conditioning is deteriorating, right? If you are in a place where everything is kind of going to hell, you thrive in a way that fuels like the the, the cycle that's already going on. So, okay. so much about like my my jail time and my prison time wasn't spent on me trying to enlighten myself, trying to ground myself, trying to, you know, like really look at the future for what it can be. Mm-hmm. Because again, it's like now you in prison and you around people that are never going home mm-hmm. and they don't care about hurting somebody. Right. Like they don't care. Oh God. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Right. Like, so yeah. And they I got, probably, they probably hate you for the fact that you're not there for life. Some people will, mm-hmm. but then it's others that'll see that and be like, Hey, don't let this be your reality, homie. Like, you need to, you know, focus on this. So if people give you books, people will, you know, try to fuel you and, like, steer you in directions. And that's another thing I was I was fortunate enough to come across. I was fortunate enough to be amongst people who knew that, you know, prison isn't the end-all, be-all. And this culture isn't a culture that will will thrive. Like, ultimately, like, Everybody is in everybody ends up losing in this situation to some degree. If it's not family, it's your privileges. You know, it's it's food, it's time, it's energy, it's stress. You know, you grow old, it's so much of yourself and what you love and care for and what you think about is lost that, you know, people like they they they, they want to help people thrive. Um Yeah, that's really nice to hear, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Were you uh I mean I'm sure you were. Were you really scared when you first you know went through the pro like what is the intake process like and are there besides the people that were really nice are there ones that are really threatening and you know prisoners and to explain that process and like what what yeah what was your first night in prison like so um my first night in prison was I was, it's weird because again, like I was prepped for it. I like from having conversations with my brother being prepped and conditioned in the county jail for what the process is going to be like, like what to expect, mm-hmm. um, being, you know, n- no pun intended being like armed with, uh-huh. you know, with things that are like protect you. Um, and not in a physical sense, right. Of like what to look out for who do, who you should talk to, you know, so on and so forth, like the process. Um, when my first, so you go to reception first. It's not like a, you get arrested, you go to jail, you go to court, and then they send you to a prison and you go to that prison and you sit there and, you know, it's not that kind of process. You know, you spend two years, three years. I, I was in the county jail with a guy who was fighting his case for eight years. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's like, you go through that whole process and then 
you start your prison process, but you got to go through reception. Reception is where they assess your case, who you are, where they're going to send you, how much points is it? You know, I'm like, what is your uh, threat so that, level? So that's before they decide what prison you're going to, or did you know? No, you already, you, you're in the prison system, but they haven't classified you yet to know which prison you're going to go to. You know, uh-huh. like they have to go through case by case and figure out who's who, where you can go, what you can do, what you can, how much points. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's this whole matrix system. That and if you need like protection and stuff, yeah. right? because so I had interviewed this other um, uh, ex prisoner, uh, Matthew Hahn, which you should look up his story. He's a really cool guy, and he lives uh, in, in this, a similar area to you now, because um, you're in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's two. Anyways, he he w- he went to prison for um, uh, burglarizing homes yeah. or robbing homes. I think I forget which is the proper term. But um, basically, he gave up his third strike to turn in a child molester, right? Mm, yeah. So he – and I think he was just tired of being a meth addict and a criminal. I think he was just like, I, whatever. So – he uh so when he went to prison he was explaining that he was in a weird position because he was technically like a snitch he he got this guy in trouble um and also it had something to do with even though he was the one that wasn't the one that was involved in abusing a child um but it still had that connotation to it that people could you know maybe misconstrue so i remember i think he was saying that they offered him protection or to go to more of a like a, a lockdown wing or, and i think he decided not to so is that yeah. does that happen very often where you can decide like it just or is you know, that- it depends on the factors of your case mm-hmm. in cases like that um like yeah you know that is an option for for people but it wasn't in my case okay so i just you know i went i ended up going to a main line um i was sent from Delano to Old Corcoran State Prison in mm-hmm. 2008. And when I got there, we were on lockdown. The blacks and the whites had a riot mm-hmm. a couple days prior. And again, so much about conditioning comes with how you are supposed to show up. And mm-hmm. this is, a, this is a, a, a facet of life that we all do, but we don't realize it because we've gotten that good at it. In any Mm -hmm. situation, in any environment, we show up in a way that we believe will best aid in that environment, right? In that setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you don't walk into a prison and be like, oh, I'm scared. You walk into a prison like, I've been here before. Yeah. When you go in and meet your celly and you, you know, you talk to the police, you look them in their face and in their eyes and you, you know, you speak with authority right like in the sense of like i'm demanding respect right like you don't get mm-hmm. you're not getting loud you're not getting belligerent but that look your poise how you stand how you carry yourself shows like you know i'm not going to be you know mistreated or like if you try to mistreat me like they're like we're gonna it's, it's gonna be a problem mm-hmm. so my first night in prison was exactly how my first day in jail was right it's like I have to be something. I'm not going to be like over the top, but I'm going to step into this space and I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to be firm. I'm going to look people in the eye. You know, I'm going to be 
shorts. I'm not going to be long-winded, like none of that. Um, Very serious, straight to the point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like let me start my process. Like let me get acclimated. Let me get settled in so I can start doing my time. And mm-hmm. that's how that's how it happens. Like, yeah, it's, it's weird to be like, I just turned 20 and I'm sitting in prison and I'm not getting out until I'm in my thirties. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's weird to think that, but then also when your Sally and your neighbor got life without the possibility of parole, it's like, shit. Yeah. You short timing, feel good about it. You know? Yeah. Did you get along with your, your first Sally? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had all of, again, I tell my mother, my mother said every prison that I went to was the prison that she prayed I wouldn't go to. And I told her, I said, mom, I was, um, blessed enough to be in the most dangerous places in the safest conditions. Um, meaning I was in the cell with people who were respectable people who, um, you know, wasn't trying to like use or abuse me. Um, I was in a cell with people I can get along with mm-hmm. everybody from cats my age to, you know, to older, older gentlemen, um, and being in, in situations where, you know, like, yes, yeah, small stuff happens. That's like unavoidable. But for the most part, I was always in a place where I didn't fear for my safety when it came to my cell, right. Or when it came to me going to yard, it's like, I didn't, I never had to fear like, man, these dudes are going to kill me if I step outside of this cell. Mm-hmm. Like I was always amongst people again, who were respectable, who, you know, like were very, very wise and very attentive to like what was needed in order to maintain safety, maintain security. Mm-hmm. So I was given a lot of, uh, a lot of game. I was given tools to just help me survive and progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have, you have a celly obviously. And then, so you're saying like most of the people, would it be like on a cell block? We're all good people. And then you never really had to mix with maybe a more dangerous group. Is that, Hell am no. I understanding that correctly? So, so what I'm saying is I was, I was fortunate enough to see people and to be involved with people mm-hmm. when they were choosing to be at their best. Got it. Okay. There is so many there is so many facets to humanity and to people in general, right? Mm-hmm. Like again, I've been in situations where people were murdered. I've seen people stabbed to death. Mm-hmm. I've seen riots, I've been in fights. I've you know, I've been into like the mess that prison offers. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is I was always in a position and in and in a time in space where uh, people were thinking more level-headed, right? Mm, got it. Okay. Especially when it came to my interactions, right? Like I never uh-huh. disrespected anybody. I never um, did something to where it would elicit a kind of response that would end with me being hurt or end with mm-hmm. me being, you know, stabbed or, but again, like I know how quick prison can turn to the prisons that people see in movies. Like that is a real thing. Yeah. But what it isn't, it isn't the norm that everybody would think it is. Oh, well, that's good to know. Yeah. 
What what was if there is a best part? What was well? I mean, it, it, on your hustle, you were you seemed very sad to leave the, the friends that you made there. So there must have been many good parts of of prison. What was the looking back a really good memory from being in prison, and then uh, also a really scary memory? So there is. I want to be very clear about this. Like there is nothing good about prisons. <laughs> what Figured. there? But what there is is there's moments of great humanity from people who are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, that, that's something that I really, really would just like encourage people to look at. Right. Because so much about my growth and my change, change didn't happen because of a prison. Mm-hmm. It happened because of the people who believed in me enough to support and encourage me. Like I could have been this, you know, great person, this phenomenal human being without prison with the same people. People mm-hmm. have changed uh, me and my understanding of self and my understanding of value. So I do have a lot of love, um, a lot of appreciation, a lot of respect. Um, and it's a lot of people who are incarcerated that I exalt, right? Because mm-hmm. not only have they been in places physically, mentally, emotionally, that a lot of people don't even know exist, right? Like have been mistreated, have done harm, right? And have owned the fact that like I have blood on my hands. And for that reason, I can never cause harm again. Like I know, Mm. I know what the darkness really looks like. And this isn't, this isn't something that I want for people. Uh, For the majority of the world, right? Like violence is a theory and it's something that we have been desensitized with like because of you know movies and television and then all of that good stuff which is which is fine and dandy to an extent but when you are dealing with somebody who has actually done those things right like Mm -hmm. you can see in their eyes like whether or not they believe that like people don't know what happens to us in here um Mm -hmm. so when I was leaving, I was very, very overwhelmed. I was emotionally distraught because I'm saying bye to people that I may never see again. Mm-hmm. Right. And these are the people that have, you know, been there when I lost family members, when um, I had nothing to offer to the world. Mm-hmm. But yet they seen me and they said, man, you deserve better. Like anything I can do, homie, to help you, I got you. You know, uh, you can always reach me here. Um, take this. Give me this. Uh, here, do this. People that really, like, helped me to grow in a way that a lot of the world just don't offer. These are tool sets that the world doesn't offer. Um, wow. So, so I was, I was very, very hurt. Like, you know, people in the world don't haven't heard the term like, well, some people have because they've been doing work, but, you know, have heard the term like sit in the fire. Uh-huh. What's that mean? Sit in the fire means in moments of discomfort, sit in it and process it because it's information. Yeah. Whenever you feel hurt or angry or first and foremost, understand that anger is a secondary emotion. What mm-hmm. is the, the root cause of that emotion? Do you feel ashamed? Are you embarrassed? Right. Like yeah. now let's. Let's understand that, you mm-hmm. know, like don't let, allow your anger to be a defense mechanism mm-hmm. yeah. because if you're not mindful, 
of how your brain and how your body and your heart processes um, information that is being given in any moment, you can lash out and Mm -hmm. hurt people, ultimately hurt people, right? Like, and it's just this kind of terminology, this kind of understanding of how, how we can develop in a way that aids in growth, right? That brings about like a sound mind and purpose and love and like the truest of senses um, to not have those people a part of my life as I have had for the last 13 years mm-hmm. is frightening, right? Like, and these are people that I've seen every day, every mm-hmm. day, especially when I was in San Quentin because I did eight years straight. So, people that I seen every day for eight years and people that I learned from, right? People that, again, like I've shared moments from, shared moments with, right? Like shared dreams with like everything from, um, from childhood traumas, mm-hmm. minds and theirs, mm-hmm. right? Like that kind of vulnerability. Yeah. That you don't and, really get with a lot of people outside of a situation like that where you're forced to really get to know a person. And 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 I, I would imagine it's kind of like people are more honest about their traumas because it's like, well, hell, I'm already here. I mean, yeah. clearly something went wrong. So <laughs> let's talk about it. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things, again, is, you know, now um, in like doing this kind of work, you know, we are more mindful of how it is we take control of our narrative because implicitly people can do or say something that is very traumatizing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with all good intentions, like can bring about a lot of harm. If just like, if we, if we're not mindful, um, even in this situation, one of the things that a lot of people just don't get is in essence, um, you're asking me like, tell me the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Mm-hmm. And I want to record it. Like that's a hard thing for for people to 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 process, right? Like, yeah, it's interesting, but when we've been doing the work, we understand that like this is a moment to educate people, right? Like yeah. this is a moment to enlighten people, and this mm-hmm. is a moment to build like um, a sound connection with people who are interested in the humanity of others, right? Mm-hmm. Before a lot of guys that are in there. It's like, why the fuck you want to keep asking me uh, what I come to prison for? I ain't asked you if you cheated on your husband. I ain't asked you if you've been stealing. Right? Like, people get very defensive mm-hmm. because in group settings, we're always required and we're always asked to share the most intimate and the most embarrassing moments of our lives. Mm-hmm. And we never get an exchange. So between incarcerated people, it's like... Not only am I telling you that I have skeletons in my closet, I'm going to show you the skeleton and, and I'm going to tell you in detail, like how this got there. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, because of you, because you did that, I'm going to do the same. So there's, it's a balance. It's like, I'm not just being open. I'm not being vulnerable. I'm not being transparent and being, mm-hmm. and everybody else is being completely guarded. So yeah. that sense of trust and it, it it brings about a lot of healing and a lot of understanding of like how we can help and heal each other 
once we are like really, really at a place to, you know, just speak open and honestly about like the things that we've done. So that's why leaving was really, really hard for me. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. So before you went to prison, um, did you have an interest in music or was that something that developed while you were there? I never. So I used to like play around with little music software. I had a buddy named Andrew Adams in high school. Him and his older brother used to make beats and he used to really, really encourage me like, man, you should do beats. You can be really good at it. I'm like, ah, I'm cool. I'll pass. <laughs> Right? It just, yeah. it wasn't my thing. I, I love I feel video. like it sounds like anything that, like, before you were in prison, anything that was suggested to you, like, do you want to be in a gang? You should do beats. You're just like, not, you You need to come up with it on your own. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm cool. Yeah. You know, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. But I never forget, I was in, I was in the county jail. We were, again, in this long process to go to court. And sometimes, again, you sit in these, you go from, like, one court tank to the to the next to the next so on and so forth but you can be sitting in these tanks in these uh, holding cells for like seven hours right like you can really be in there that long mm-hmm. and um it was this white guy he was like doing spoken word and rapping and it was it was super dope to me simply mm-hmm. because not only do you have like this I get he's a white guy, but clearly, like, he's from the hood, right? Clearly, he, like, grew up, you know, in the culture, so he ha- he has an understanding. And mm-hmm. it's not like he's not out of place. Mm-hmm. But in these court tanks, in the street life, you have supposed, like, enemies. Hoods, you got people in there for killing other people from different hoods. And it's like, you got, it's, it is monsters amongst monsters, Right. Mm-hmm. And I say that term not calling any of my people. Right. Or any anybody who's fighting a severe case like that, a monster. I use that as a as an understanding of a mindset, like a person that's willing to do heinous things amongst uh-huh. other people who are willing to do heinous things and that have made it clear. I don't like you. I don't like mm-hmm. what you stand for. And like there is problems between us two, like that's how I use that that term. Mm-hmm. But when this guy was speaking and you know reciting his poems and his raps, everybody was captivated. Mm-hmm. So to have one man in a in a moment change the dynamic of a space that is filled with people that are on edge and that are looking for any reason to offer violence is astonishing. Mm -hmm. I was floored, right? Like I was, I was stuck. And I just, I remember thinking like, this dude is so raw. Like, man, this dude is crazy. Mm -hmm. And I went back to my cell that night and I wrote, I think my first poem. That's but cool. every ever since then, like I just I started writing poems and people said that they started to sound like raps. So I just started like doing it to beats. But yeah, ultimately that's that's how I got introduced to music. And now you're creating your own music. Well, and you started doing it in prison too. So yep. what is um I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I, I could talk to you for forever. But um what uh what is what is life like now afterwards? Like how 
I mean, it looks like you're very active in the music scene, at least from your Instagram. And it looks like you're doing public speaking. Like, yeah. what is your life like now? And you've been out not even a whole year, right? No, I've been out um, six months now. Okay. Yeah. And my life after my incarceration is a lot like my life going into like the last moments of my incarceration, right? Like really understanding again, self and value, Mm -hmm. um, understanding that the system that I don't say that I was thrown into because a lot of my mind along with conditionings and along with, um, implicit biases, right. Along with all of these different components that has created like this whirlwind that placed me into the criminal justice system. Um, like I realized that I have more to offer to people when I think about what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. So I use my lived experience, um, surviving the criminal justice system inside, right? Like I'm, I'm still on parole, so I'm still a part of it, but surviving the aspects inside 13 years straight incarcerated as a way to, for one, deconstruct the school to prison pipeline because so many people leave high school and they go directly into the criminal justice. I don't even want to say it because it's not Jeez. just into the criminal yeah. system, right? Mm-hmm. Into the just the supposed justice system, but also there are people that have been a part of that system since they were children. If it wasn't for truancy, if it, you know, for a school fight, if it wasn't for stealing a backpack, you know, something trivial that could have been taken care of a bunch of different ways, you know, the authorities are called and now they're introduced into this system. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So using, again, my lived experience and my understanding of how the the system is set up to continue to cause harm, right? Like not just to those that have harmed somebody, but to those that I have, that are survivors and victims, right? Like it's so much about the system that does not do them justice. And they're mm-hmm. not, it's not offering healing in a way to, you know, like grow productively. Um, but I see that and it's like, I don't want people to go through that. So I'm going to just offer what it is that I can. And that's just my story, my perspective, um, my experiences, uh, my music, right. Just a way to reach, especially the younger people, but to reach all people that have a second just to listen, right. For whatever, how, whatever, however they come across, like who I am or what it is that I do. But that's why um, that's what I do because that's what I was doing mm-hmm. inside. Um, yeah. What is your ultimate life goal now that you're out? Like, what do you want to like ultimate career goal? I guess. Uh, my ultimate career goal is to be an educator. I can't be a teacher cause I have a felon. I have a felony, mm-hmm. but what I can do is I can be an educator. So mm-hmm. I can go into spaces, um, as a facilitator, as uh, a guest speaker, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And to, for one, again, inspire and encourage people to do something that I had to do that kind of set me on the path to changing my life. 
is to redefine words that um, we all kind of stand on. I understand extremely that we do ourselves a disservice by using a universal definition to um, to highlight one aspect of a bunch of different people's lives. All right, like mm-hmm. we are all unique. We are all different. Yeah, and I agree. For me to think that powerful means to you the same it means to me, I'm downplaying the complexities of your life, right? I'm reducing you to my understanding. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I would like to just encourage people to, like, redefine these words that have such substance in our life. Like, what does powerful look like? What does it mean? You know, share my definitions, um, share my understanding, share my perspectives. And if this is something that, especially the younger, the the younger, the, the younger generation, if this is something that they see and that they feel, then I can offer you more. Mm-hmm. Because I think again, that's great. Yeah. You know, one of the things like, again, like I do say that I was fortunate uh, to have an upbringing, but there's a lot of things that I do overlook or I don't speak about because of the traumas. Right. Because of my traumas and because of my harms. But, you know, one of the things that really, really affected me is, you know, I was never really told growing up that um, I was worthy enough or that mm-hmm. I was loved. I didn't hear it in a way that it resonated and it became a part of my foundation. And so growing up, like, yeah, I was able to stand on my own, but I was still fractured and I was willing to do harm and I was willing to do um, some heinous things. Because you didn't value yourself enough to even care about the consequences necessarily. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's even in a non-criminal way. I mean, you think about people... um, who, you know, had hard childhoods and they live high risk lifestyles in terms of like drug use or women that put themselves in really scary, precarious sexual situations because they just don't really care what happens to them because they don't value themselves. It's, it is, it's, it's sad. Most of that stuff comes from your childhood. It's, it's really, you know, it's hard, but it's very impressive to see how much work you've done on yourself and what you want to give back to others. And I feel like, um, I mean, just cause I also care about money, but I feel like there's people like you, there's this guy that has been on Oprah's <laughs> podcast a lot. He's like, he was an, um, uh, uh, an ex criminal or whatever. He'd been to prison for a long time. And like, he's doing the kind of a similar thing, like the public speaking, the educating the, and wrote a book and he's got an incredible life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just look at Ice T. Honestly, he was yeah. a pimp. He'd been, I'm just joking. But I was just listen, <laughs> listening to something about him the other day. I'm like, man, he's really lived a full life. Like, yeah, yeah. to like becoming like a, like one of the biggest TV actors of all time. I'm like, yeah. maybe I should have gotten in more trouble. My career would have took off quicker. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I was just a dork. But um, yeah, it's been really awesome talking to you. But I was just thinking while we were podcasting because you. Um, your music is in some of the episodes of Ear Hustle. If you want yeah. um, me to use it in this episode, I, I would love to and, and promote yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so just yeah. send me, email me anything you right. you you would want me to use. And um, my, uh, my boyfriend who edits the sound on my podcast, he can cut it in and, yeah, make it sound really cool. we get to the truth today, sure, man. Yeah, just let me know anything else you need. Either, um, pick up your yeah. views. You know, it's all good. 
Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think my production team, it's it can, it's comprised of me and my boyfriend, uh, is a little smaller than what I'm guessing the Ear Hustle one is. Like, it's amazing, like, how much goes into making a podcast. You can tell Ear Hustle is... I mean, expl- is it, like, incredibly well-produced? There's a lot of people... No, it's not, it's not a lot of people. It is really. It is Erline, myself, Nigel, uh, Bruce, Julie Shapiro. Okay, you've already named about. You've already named five. four more than. Okay, five. Okay, you've named three that's, that's, more that are on mine. <laughs> that's five people that deals with direct production. Yeah. Like we have other people that do like media stuff and you know handle like tweets and little stuff like that, but. When it comes to producing the show, it's five people. Okay, I guess that's not that that big, but it's 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 really well done. Did you ever think that that was gonna blow up the way that it did? Like, I just heard um, one of the most popular podcasts, at least in the true crime genre, is called My Favorite Murder. I mean, they're they're so big they sell out. Like, they'll do Boston, for example, and they'll they'll have they'll do three nights in a row, and they'll be selling out like ten thousand person theaters, like. Crazy. It's insane. Anyways, they gave you guys a shout out like a couple weeks ago. They were yeah. like, "Oh my god, I've discovered this pod." Like, uh, your guys' podcast is huge. Did you ever expect it to blow up like that, or when did it when did it start to feel like, "Oh wow, this is a thing"? So the in the first season, when at the beginning it was only Nigel, Erline, and myself, mm-hmm. and. Nigel came in and she was like, hey, you know, I heard about this podcast. We were going to do a podcast anyway, but we we're going to do it just to be aired inside of the prison. And Nigel's like biggest dream was, man, what if we can get this play through all the prisons? Right. Mm-hmm. And we just wanted to tell stories about, you know, life inside, you know, from the perspective of those that live it. Because, again, having our narrative to be told in a way that it's not like, oh, we're going to make it seem like we're not bad people. But we're gonna tell all of the we're gonna tell all of the story, right? We're gonna get to the parts of the story that gets overlooked or just left out in general. Mm-hmm. And we're like, cool. You know what I'm saying? Erline's like, yeah, for sure. We can we can do it. And when we had our production meeting and we was like, Oh crap, we're in the top ten in Radiotopia's um Radiotopia's a uh, a uh, uh, pie quest and I told Nigel, I'm like, We're gonna get it And she's like you think so? She's like, oh, man, I really hope. I'm like, Naj, we're going to get it. I'm like, no, I'm like, nobody's doing this. This yeah. is this is going to be, I'm like, it's going to be good. So we end up winning, and we had our uh, our initial meeting with Julie Shapiro and, and Carrie Hoffman, who are executive directors and our executive editor. And she said, i never forget, Julie said, you know, how many how many people do you, do you are you guys thinking you guys will reach? And Erline was like, I want to reach a million people in season one. She was like, I don't, you know, she was like, if you get 50,000 in a season, she was like, that's really, really good for podcasts. Mm-hmm. And in season one, we hit, we hit like 8 million. Wow. So we was like. What? 8 million in the first season? That's insane. Yeah. We're up to like, I think 40, 40 something million downloads now. That's and amazing. We were just like, yeah. That's really cool. We didn't think it was going to be this big, but hey, we just kept working, you know? Yeah. 
That's amazing. Well, it's been really great talking to you. Um, no, same here. Tell tell my listeners where they can find you, your social media, and then you know any anywhere you're doing any public speaking. Well, I guess not now. Not now, yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah, you can you can follow me on um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just under my name Antoine Banks Williams. Uh, yeah, you can you can catch me there, and there I'll have if it's not post about music or upcoming events um it'll be something ear hustle related so you know awesome tune in, check me out yeah that's so great well thank you so much um yes shoot me over an email with uh, your music and then the file from this that you recorded on your end if you don't mind uh, oh i got you